welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. Not that we know the subject of today's conversation has actually committed any real crimes or is doing so right now. I mean, we do know they paid $574 million to U.S. authorities as part of a settlement for its role in the opioid crisis, which has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. We also know they agreed to pay more than $100 million to the South African government in compensation for its involvement in a massive corruption scandal. Then there's the tens of millions they made consulting for the scandal plague Enron at the turn of the century. But the firm is so secretive, we're not even certain who their clients have been, or are today, or the work they do for whoever their clients happen to be. What we do know, and will learn from today's guest, is they act in an amoral fashion, as if right or wrong makes no difference. All that matters is they get paid. Despite all these scandals, and many, many more, somehow a consultant from that very firm not only ran for the Democratic Party presidential nomination and at one point was one of the leaders in the polls in 2020, but that candidate, Pete Buttigieg, is now the Secretary of Transportation in the Biden administration. But it's not like it's a Democratic Party outfit. No, the, the consulting firm of McKinsey and Company gets not only bipartisan support here in the United States, but also receives the backing of many European governments and their leaders. In a few minutes, we will have the return of freelance journalist, podcast host, and publishing consultant Garrison Lovely, who wrote the Nation magazine article, Confessions of McKinsey Whistleblower, Inside the Soul-Crushing, Morally Bankrupt, Top Secret World of Our Most Powerful Consulting Firm. Garrison is the host of the podcast, The Most Interesting People I Know, which I have never been on. That's fascinating. But you can find it at mostinterestingpeople.podbean.com. Garrison is a publishing consultant at New York Focus, an independent newsroom investigating power in the Empire State, which you can find at nysfocus.com and on Twitter at one nysfocus, as in New York State Focus. Follow Garrison on Twitter at Garrison Lovely. Find out more about him at his website, garrisonlovely.com. Garrison's writing has been featured at BBC Future, Vox, Jacobin, many other places. Garrison was on the show back in on 4-20-2019 when we talked with him about his writing at Current Affairs, Make America Trip Again, Are Psychedelics a Solution to Our Political Turmoil, A Dangerous Unknown, or Something Else Entirely. You can find that interview with Garrison at our website, thisishell.com, when searching on his name. And as always, our interviews at our site are free. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new about you? Uh, it's a lot cooler in here than uh, last <laughs> time I was in here. When we arrived at the studio and the heat was on. 
<laughs> the heat was on a 90 degree day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's uh, like it was actually like a cooler back there, like you're in uh, yeah. Cool Hand Luke and being right. thrown into. <laughs> Usually it's a sauna in here, but I was, I think, I, I, I drew the better lot that day. Yes, you did. Yeah. So. Have you seen these creepy ads on TV for buildsubmarines.com? I have. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you know who puts those ads on? No. Nobody does. Because the print is so... And it's not just because I'm legally blind. At the end, in the smallest of small print, they say who they are. So other than insisting we do something, and it's not said what we should do to get submarines to be built, I'm not sure how I'm going to help out in that process. It doesn't even tell you who is sponsoring the ad. It seems like it's the Navy, but it's not, because... It isn't. It's crazy. It's the Southeastern New England Defense Industry Alliance. Seems legit. Which promotes careers and workforce development programs to support the submarine shipbuilding supply chain. That's the supply chain we needed to get back up and running. (laughs) Yeah. Build back better, baby. What were you going to say? You wonder. Uh, I just wonder what kind of horribly bloody ghoul money is behind all that. Right? I mean... You know that they're, if they're an alliance for uh, job creators, you know it's just defense contractors. Yeah, and when it has one of those, it just has one of those names of an organization trying to, you know, hide under the radar. Exactly. Really generic name. Exactly. You no. Know. We needed an alliance to cover up the fact that it's defense contractors. So there's no footage of war in these ads. There's no reasoning for why we need more submarines. There's no mention of where these submarines are needed. There's no mention of how much each submarine costs. Us, but hey, who cares if these are weapons of mass destruction further entrenching the defense industry is integral to the U.S. economy. We're creating jobs. It's just as the right would get this. This is from the National Review, very radical magazine. Sure. So the headline for their article about buildsubmarines.com is submarine propaganda. That's the <laughs> National <laughs> Review. That's it. Yeah, they, they love Building submarines, but maybe their, uh, you know, their, their particular bankrollers and donors weren't uh, included in the contracts. I don't know. Well, so check this out. So that same National Review article both makes fun of the ridiculous nature of the ad, saying the commercial is what you, what would result from Michael Bay running an ad agency staffed with Oberlin undergrads. <laughs> Whoa! I know. They love picking on Oberlin <laughs> over there. By the way, I know. And then they say uh, the individuals welding and turning wrenches in the ad are far too attracted far too attractive to have ever been near a ship but they then add jokes aside this ad should be put should be one part of a wider effort to promote naval expansion and repair so thanks national review for finally pointing out that u.s military and military contractor ads are indeed propaganda because as it's been said before, the U.S. has the best propaganda system in the world because here in the U.S., America's, Americans don't believe their government and their press are ever engaged in propaganda. So, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? I've been waiting all my life for this question from hell, <laughs> and I didn't even know it. This week's question from hell is, what does This Is Hell have to do to attract more racist, white supremacist, misogynist, far-right trolls so we can make fun of them? (laughs) So earlier this week, we mentioned how listener Nick E. answered this week's question from hell on Patreon. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Nick's answer is so thoughtful that we wanted to share uh, his response on its own. Will's going to have more of your answers to the question from hell following our conversation with Garrison. 
But again, this week's question from Hell, what can This Is Hell do to attract more right-wing trolls? Uh, past multiple-time question from Hell winner Nick writes, Gather some of those trolls up by distributing free firearms and put them on buses and drive them to the Democrat-controlled city of Chicago. Arrange meet-and-greets and then thinking drinks with party apparatchiks. People living in tents under Lower Wacker, police officials, vaccinators, Irv Cupsonet, and members of the Ricketts family. So if you get the Irv Cupsonet reference, you have either lived in Chicago your entire life, are a student of Chicago media history, or are simply ancient. In fact, his wife, Essie, would regularly shop at a bookstore where I worked, and if you come by our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, I'll share that story with you, because there's not a chance in hell I'm sharing that on air. So Nick E. continues on how we can get trolls to troll this is hell. Nick writes, accommodations for the trolls would be at boutique hotels along the Magnificent Mile, including all tips, transportation, fees, and expenses, breakfast and dinner included, lunch on your own. Because apparently, according to Nick, buying lunch for fascists, that's a bridge too far. Nick continues, then off to the exciting autograph session with the non-white members of the Chicago Bulls, White Sox, Cubs, Blackhawks, Sky, Fire, and the Disco Bowlers up on Waveland. A six-hour pedantic all-Japanese tour of the Museum of Contemporary Art where they will receive autographed copies of a photograph of Piss Christ by Andre Serrano. <laughs> <laughs> then they'll be whisked away uh, for a hygienically curated tour of the best Chicago restrooms designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> the evening ends with a pajama party featuring Garrett's cheese caramel popcorn and a double feature of Ghostbusters and Blues Brothers. They sleep late and wake up to enjoy a drag queen reading hour brunch and karaoke, including free head-to-toe makeovers and 15-minute shoulder massages. As they, as their whirlwind tour comes to an end, they board their buses for the trip back home to the land of bigots, misogynists, racists, etc. They each get a swag bag, including copies of the major pieces of the best European socialist and anarchist literature of the 17th and 18th century, Les Oeuvres Complètes d'Alexandre de Jeune, the best of Dilbert and a, bullet en and a bullet engraved with their name on the gun they received at the beginning of their whole trip. Throughout their trip, they will have been trailed by cadres of This Is Hell private investigators covertly capturing videos of their experiences, which will go viral when published to top international right-wing authoritarian news outlets. Nick, thank you so much for wow. your very well-thought-out answer. But for us to be able to afford all that, we will need about a thousand more Patreon patrons. So everybody subscribe to our weekly Patreon-only podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, what the hell does that consulting firm McKinsey do anyway? We will share, also have This Week in Rotten History. We'll be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Capitalism is the virus and this is hell and if capitalism is a virus a virus that infects cultures and relationships a pandemic that has killed countless tens of hundred or hundreds of millions over its history then one of the many that spread that infection and made a lot of money doing it while causing unknown literally unspeakable atrocities is the consulting firm mckinsey and company here to give the give his insider take on what it's like to work 
at the McKinsey Consulting Firm returning to This Is Hell. We are very happy to have back on the show freelance journalist, podcast host, and publishing consultant Garrison Lovely, who posted the Nation Magazine article, Confessions of a McKinsey Whistleblower. Make sure you check out Garrison's podcast, The Most Interesting People I Know, which you can find at Most Interesting People Podcast. So I want to ask you a couple of really general questions right here at the beginning, Garrison. By the way, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for your uh, production consultancy at the beginning of the show, trying to fix up your uh, uh, phone line. See, you are a very good consultant. Look at that. No problem. I've I've been on the other side of it. So you write exactly. See, you know, uh, you write. Founded in 1926, McKinsey is still widely considered the most prestigious counsel, consulting firm in the field. All right. Let's assume nobody knows what McKinsey does because everybody seems to just give them a kind of a rubber stamp of endorsement every time I ever hear them mentioned on, in the media. So what is that field for those who are completely unaware of what McKinsey? Uh, does generally? What is it that they are supposed to be doing? Yeah. So McKinsey is a management consulting firm. And the way they pitch it is that they solve tough problems for organizations, uh, largely in the private sector. These problems can range, but often come down to some one-off project that is meant to increase profitability for the people they're working for. But this can also look at things like entering new markets in some new country or cutting down on labor costs or cutting down on other kinds of costs, merging two companies that are uh, been you know bought like one buys the other. They want to merge their their various functions. Um, it, it's a huge range of things and it is quite hard to explain. And even after working there, it's like I don't have perfect insight into everything that they do because they have offices in dozens of countries. They have hundreds of projects going on at once, maybe thousands. Um, and it's a pretty pretty wide range of things. Do they have a predisposed agenda that they impose wherever they go? Or is their analysis varied from place to place and the response depends on who has hired them and what they have hired them for? Yeah, I think McKinsey will liken itself as non-ideological, just doing dispassionate analysis of uh, your client data to solve whatever problem they're brought in to solve. Um, in practice, they are very much pro-market on the labor management divide. I mean, the tell is in the title of management consulting. They're clearly taking a position there. Um, and they're, they're often speaking to corporate executives, uh, people who have a lot of money. People at McKinsey also have a lot of money. Um, some of the things that will come through is like, there's a lot of immigrants at the firm. It's very international. So it's often like pro-immigration, uh, pretty pro-neoliberalism, pro-privatization, very pro-market. Um, and again, they won't say they have any political agenda and there will be efforts to limit the political actions of people at the firm. Uh, they got in trouble for telling Russian uh, McKinsey consultants not to participate in anti-Putin protests. Uh, and then they walk that back. But it kind of speaks to their desire to not really be seen as a partisan actor in any way. So are they pushing, and tell me if this is like inaccurate anyway, are they pushing 
libertarianism in this kind of uh, way where they try to make it look like it's we're being objective in the way that we're doing this. We're just using data, and data is always objective. It can't have an opinion, right? Algorithms, there's no opinion there, despite the fact that humans be, human beings are the people who make those algorithms. Are they uh, trying to push a libertarian agenda and package that in a way in which they're saying that this is an objective way at approaching this problem? Yeah, I I've never really thought of it as libertarian per se. I, I did work with a, you know, out libertarian as one of my managers, but I mean most of the people at McKinsey are Democrats and they donated to Hillary Clinton at many much higher rates than like donating to Trump, for example, which may not tell you that much. But um I, I think they're like they're pro-market, but they're not like often anti-government zealots necessarily, but they might think that the government should work more like the private sector and rely more on contractors. Um, and that, yeah, wherever possible, markets should be taking the role of, uh, you know, top-down kind of planning. And this this comes through in like efforts to privatize government assets, um, which I guess is pretty consistent with the libertarian worldview. But I, I think you know it's it's kind of a not great word because nobody really can define it very well. But neoliberalism is is really what comes to mind, which is like yeah, reducing the role of government. Uh, increasing the role of markets, having international flows of capital and, and labor um, and doing work wherever it's like most profitable, I, I think is like a, a pretty solid summary of, of the kind of worldview that McKinsey embodies insofar as it does so embody do you, any worldview. Why do you think that leads to more Democrats working at McKinsey than Republicans? I think it's probably just a product of hiring from uh elite universities where people are overwhelmingly democratic. Um, I think if you go further up, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a more right wing and like libertarian ish bent of the more senior people there. Uh, I know like a senior partner uh, from Pennsylvania ended up running for governor um, Paul Mango. I think it was his name as like a, a Trump guy and uh, you know, pretty, pretty right wing. Um, but I guess it's also just like speaks to how, pro-market you can be um, while still identifying with like the Democratic Party's social policies. So you start by explaining how in the summer of 2015, when you were 21 years old, you found yourself working at one of America's most notorious jails. You write that I was interning for McKinsey & Company, the elite management consulting firm. We had been tasked with helping reduce violence at Rikers Island, New York City's main jail complex. Multiple members of the team had seen combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was the youngest by a few years. Did you feel in any way out of place? What was your background that would lead you to be working with Iraq and Afghanistan combat vets? Did you have some, do you have similar skills or did you have a separate set of skills that McKinsey thought were necessary for this project? Yeah. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, I had started a prison reform group um, and I had been working on that for a few years. I had also worked as a teaching assistant for the Cornell Prison Education Program. So I'd actually spent a good amount of time in various uh, jails and prisons in, in the state. And I was really excited by the idea of like going in and spending a summer working on reforming a, an actual jail or prison. And I expressed this to recruiters and, and this the fact that McKinsey was doing the Rikers Project was actually a big part of why I chose to take the job there because working for some tech or finance firm just didn't feel nearly as interesting to me and like mission driven. And so I didn't have, you know, super 
strong expertise on like doing the type of work McKinsey was doing, which involved a lot of spreadsheets and slide making, you know, the bread and butter of management consulting. Um, but I did have this perspective. I think it actually, there's one small thing that didn't make it into the, the essay, which is uh, I proposed a progressive reward system for for people in, in the jail, where if you had a certain streak of, of good behavior, you could get like certain rewards, like, you know, a pizza party or, or movie night or whatever it is. And uh, this was inspired by some work I'd done teaching debate in a juvenile facility um, in college. And it actually was proposed and implemented um, across the entire agency, I learned when I came back. And so there was like some small example of like, okay, maybe you can have a positive impact uh, while there if you bring a new idea to the table and have a different perspective than other people. Um, but I was, I was clearly willing to work in a facility like this. And I think I was the only summer analyst, like college undergraduate, um, who worked on the Rikers project, at least when I was there, uh, everyone else, they like were maybe wary of throwing them into a place where you might be like working behind the gate, uh, as in like going through security and like being within one of the facilities themselves. So just to make certain, so the I would assume it was the New York City Department of Corrections that had yep. hired McKinsey. Did they specifically request McKinsey and your group to help stop the corruption, violence, and the reliance on tortuous solitary confinement at Rikers as you saw it? Yeah, I mean, the overall goal was to reduce violence in Rikers. Um, there was a 14-point plan. I, I wasn't there at the beginning of, of the project, Um so I don't know how much of it was like, you know, the mayor's office or the Department of Corrections had some vision of what to do, and then McKinsey was helping implement it versus like McKinsey coming in and like helping assess the entire situation. Um, but yeah, I, I don't McKinsey would like not was not making recommendations about like solitary confinement usage, for example. I think they would consider that to be like a policy choice. Um, but it would be more like technocratic fixes. The biggest part of that work was figuring out how to classify and house people based on actual risk levels. Um, so I think most prisons or jails do this to some extent, but the way Rikers was doing it in the past just wasn't really grounded in any statistical backing. McKinsey came in, was trying to figure out how to do this like more rationally. And that seemed to be like the most promising avenue of the work. Uh, but that's also something where after the fact, after I left that project, I, I learned through reporting in ProPublica that uh, they were fudging numbers to get the desired violence reductions. And uh, it just made me, it kind of colored the entire experience. It was like the one maybe bright spot or, you know, mixed spot uh, in, in my time there. And I just became, yeah, convinced it was not actually working, or at least not to the extent they said that it was, and that there was not really a commitment to being honest about something like that. How much do you think McKinsey's supposed success is due to fudging numbers? Yeah, I in most cases, McKinsey's work is not really evaluated by the public. Uh, it'll be just done in secret for some company. And unless they're involved in something like turbocharging opioid sales, that work will never see the light of day. And so the companies internally have to deal with the consequences of the work. And I'd be surprised if this was happening in a lot of other cases, just because if you get caught, you know, the client is less likely to bring you back, you'd expect at least. And I think in a public facing uh, project like Rikers, where it was like a matter of public record that McKinsey was working for Rikers, uh, it had already been covered in, in the press. 
there's just a much stronger incentive to uh, fudge the numbers. And it might also line up with the incentives of the Department of Corrections or the mayor's office, which wants to show some positive results for this success. Whereas if you're doing it for a private sector client, at the end of the day, they're just trying to be more profitable. And there's like some different level of accountability in that. Obviously, profitability is not the best way to to organize a lot of work. Um, but I, I think this, like, it keeps McKinsey or the, the client a bit more honest in, in this way. And I'm going to write a uh, read a little bit of an excerpt here. You write that one day around a dozen of us met in a conference room to discuss the highest profile recent victim of the inhumanity at Rikers. I actually just remembered I, a friend of mine did six months at Rikers. Uh, a guy yeah. named by the name of Khalif Browder. Browder had been uh, held at Rikers for three years for allegedly stealing a backpack when he was 16. He spent roughly two years in solitary confinement attempted suicide multiple times. Browder never went to trial and was eventually released. We watched surveillance camera footage of Browder that had recently been published by The New Yorker. In one video, Browder, who is in handcuffs, is thrown to the ground by a guard. In another, he is brutalized by around 10 other incarcerated teenagers as guards neglect to control the situation. You write that I'd Spent only a few weeks working for the other side, the administrators at Rikers. But after seeing the footage of the teenagers assaulting Browder, I was ready to, quote, crack some skulls and said as much to my team. The guard assaulting Browder angered me. But good management consultant that I was, I determined that beating up the teens would be the most efficient way to end the overall violence. Why does such thinking reflect a good consultant? What does that say to you about such consultancy? I guess it. To me, I, I saw that those two videos and I was looking at like what would actually in that moment have changed the outcome. Um, and in one, it's like changing a culture of no accountability for misbehavior. Uh, and, and in this case, a, a criminal act, I think, by by that correctional officer. Uh, and in the other, it's just impotence and, and watching people more or less stand by as like this teenager gets the crap beaten out of him. And maybe something about the length of time as well in 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 the the video of of uh Browder getting beaten up by by a bunch of other teenagers um and just seeing so little action like it just made my blood boil i i, I don't know how much it speaks to the actual like mindset of a consultant but uh i think you try and like look at the things that could be you know the the dials you can turn more easily um and yeah i, I i'm not proud of of that feeling but uh, it, it's it's how I felt at the time, and it was just like hard hard to shake. And it's important for people to know. It's important that you actually recognize that within yourself. That's really fantastic. You write, soon after I started at Rikers, Browder hanged himself. He was 22, just a year older than I was. Do you, did your work at Rikers or wherever you think a consultant works, do you think they become desensitized to the inhumanity of what whatever inhumanity they happen to be seeing in that situation? Yeah, I I think that that happens over time almost inevitably. Uh, it's just hard for us to have a strong emotional reaction day in and day out to to work that we're doing. I think a big way that you can be immune to that kind of emotional responses through the layers of insulation that you have as a consultant. So, you know, my, my work day in and day out was like looking at numbers and spreadsheets uh, for, for basically all of these projects and slide decks that look just like pretty anodyne and, and, and corporate. And you're just removed enough from the actual 
violence um, and oppression that that is at the heart of you know Rikers or or ICE. Um, but when you would go to a facility at Rikers, you'd see posters on the wall of people who had been slashed with a razor, um, and this was just like a very common act of violence within the facility where people would smuggle a razor in and they would use it to attack somebody else. And this is like a way to kind of like mark somebody. Um, and this is just like a brutal thing to see. And it, it's just like a reminder of the place you are. It's just like, yeah, uh, has a longstanding culture of, of brutality. Um, and then at ICE, it was even more insulated where you're just in a corporate headquarters, basically in, in, in Washington, D.C., and I didn't go on any ride-alongs, but some people on my team did. So you're just not actually seeing the work that's being done of people being rounded up and, and often separated from, from families and removed from countries that they might have spent decades living in and then sent to a place where maybe it's not safe for them because of U.S. foreign policy in the 1980s um, or you know the drug war that the United States has been waging for, for decades. And so, yeah, I think this insulation does more than anything else uh, to remove you from the consequences of the work that you're doing above any uh, desensitization that that might happen over time. It's almost like being a drone pilot. Yeah. Yeah. So you point out that despite all of McKinsey's supposed efforts, the use of force by guards at Rikers has only increased since 2016, reaching what a federal monitor called an all-time high in 2020. In 2021, slashings and stabbings were up more than 1,000% from 2011. In 2019, ProPublica found that McKinsey had rigged its violence reduction numbers. McKinsey denied this. And in May 2022, New York City stopped using McKinsey's system for classifying detainees. In the end, the city spent $27.5 million on McKinsey's services with precious little to show for it. McKinsey, on the other hand, collected its money and moved right along. Did McKinsey fail the New York City Department of Corrections and Rikers? And are they in any way held accountable for that failure? Did Rikers prove McKinsey is both costly and ineffective as a consultancy, at least when it comes to matters of incarceration? Yeah, it seems hard to look at that and come away with any conclusion that then that they did fail. And McKinsey had never done work for a correctional agency, uh, to my knowledge, before the Rikers Project. And this was sort of like a test run. And it, it speaks to a mindset of like, if you just have smart people looking hard enough at a problem, working hard enough, they can just solve it. Um, and it doesn't really matter if they have expertise. It doesn't matter if they, you know, have empathy for the the people at the other end of the problem. Um, and I, I think, I, I don't know if McKinsey's still doing corrections work, but it seems like they should not be doing that. Um, and in terms of accountability, you know, there's some bad press, right? There's a great ProPublica article by uh, Ian McDougall about McKinsey's work at Rikers, which found that they fudged the numbers and uh, many other things. But I just don't know how much damage that kind of bad press does to McKinsey. At the end of the day, they're still the most prestigious consulting firm as rated by other consultants. And there's still a very desirable job on campuses. They have great recruiting years, even after all the bad press. And so I, I wanted to write this uh, essay to just get the word out that like, you may be sold on this idea that you can do well by doing good and, and you can have a positive impact while at McKinsey. But at least in my case, and I think in many others, that's just not true. And you should go in eyes wide open if you're going to work for this place and, and recognize that at the end of the day, there's just almost no accountability for the work that they're doing. 
um, and that you're just unlikely to be able to have a positive impact in the way that you might expect. So are they technocracy for hire? Is it uh, the privatization of technocracy? So it's not necessarily the government coming in and doing it. It's somebody who's doing it for profit. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of summarizing it. And and the technocratic mindset is just pervasive there. Um, and I think that in the Kurt Affairs essay I wrote years ago about McKinsey uh, anonymously, uh, I talk about how they shrink the solution space where they, you know, look at all the problems of the world and they just only look at solutions that don't threaten management, that don't threaten capital, that don't meaningfully change the status quo, um, and just like, well, if you just tweak these dials a bit, uh, you can, you know, reduce carbon emissions to such and such degree, or you can, I don't know, in increase uh, some other positive uh, thing. And you're just taking so much off the table in terms of like larger policy change, in terms of movement building. And I think if you look at a lot of the the most consequential positive things that have happened in our history, it's it's been the result of people working together and challenging power and coming up with legislative solutions. You also mentioned McKinsey made the prescient decision to avoid credit for its work, keeping its clients and project lists secret. In practice, this has insulated the company from the disasters it was party to, such as the collapse of Enron. So does that secrecy keep McKinsey in business? If the public knew their record as a consultancy, would that change huge corporations' minds and government agencies' opinions in hiring them? What would McKinsey be without being secret about who they consult, why they were hired, and the outcomes of their consultation? I mean, I think we're starting to see uh, a little experiment in, in that. Uh, the book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, uh, which I, I participated in, by uh, Walt Bogdanich and, and Michael Forsyth um, goes into a lot of detail about various projects that McKinsey did, and they got more access than any outsider to internal documentation and people at McKinsey and talk in great detail about various clients, um, whether it was Saudi Arabia or tobacco companies um, or ICE. They, they really go deep. And I think it has been good to shine a light on this stuff, but at least based on my outside analysis, I, I don't have, you know, the same insider perspective as I used to. Um, it, it isn't having, you know, it's not a death knell for McKinsey. Uh, they just, at this point, have been so resilient. Uh, their reputation, they're almost 100 years old. Their reputation is just very robust. Uh, and you might read these stories as a corporate client who might hire McKinsey or as an undergraduate at Harvard who might want to work there. And you can either convince yourself that, oh, it'll be different for my particular project, or this just shows that they're amoral and will work for anybody and, and do what they want, uh, which may actually be desirable if you're uh, a, a client. And yeah, I, I, I think it's just a little bit sad to just see. It's just like they're Teflon, you know, they're, they're just so hard to actually impact in this way. Um, but I, I might be wrong. There might be like real change happening within the firm, or at least a real change in, in perspective. But, you know, you have the former managing director in 2021 bragging that they had their best recruiting year ever. And this was following many of the really bad headlines of the last few years. Why hire such a secretive firm? And I know this is a silly comparison, but if I hired someone to cut my lawn and they refused to tell me if they had ever cut a lawn before and who they worked for, 
I would not allow them near the lawnmower. Why hire a consultancy firm that won't tell you who they've worked for or on what projects? And what does that tell you about the people who do hire McKinsey? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a big plus for many of the clients uh, because if the project goes well, you can claim credit for it. And you know, conversely, if it goes poorly, uh, you can't publicly blame McKinsey, but internally you can be like, well, you know, they, they gave us bad advice or something. Um, and I think that you don't want, if you're a big corporation, you don't want your secrets to be going off to, to competitors um, or to be used to, yeah, informed decision-making by, by the people you're, you're working against. Uh, but what they'll, what McKinsey will do when they're pitching a new client is say, we've worked with a top, like two different top three pharmaceutical firms on projects doing X or Y or Z. And they'll, they'll like anonymize it enough that it meets their criteria for keeping client competences, but still says like, we have done tons of work in this space that's relevant. They can share like anonymized versions of the analysis just as like a proof of concept of, of what they could do. And at this point, McKinsey's worked for basically everybody and done basically everything. And so they can point to experience uh, to justify why they should get paid millions of dollars um, uh, a month or something to to do work for you, client X. You write how you had spent most of the previous 10 weeks working with members of Rikers administrative staff at the Department of Corrections uh, headquarters. Now I worked behind the gate each morning in your second team. Each morning I removed my belt and sent my laptop bag and breakfast through an x-ray machine before proceeding to our uh, team room, a dim, cramped office. The two associates on my second team at Rikers were both ex-Marines. One went on to work in a senior role for Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton. Did that surprise you that someone would leave McKinsey and not only do government work, but work for a far right uh, senator, as Politico reported, from restricting legal and illegal immigration to hawkish foreign policy to criticizing the nation's under incarceration of criminals, which is important to remember. The Arkansas senator keeps staking out hard line positions in anticipation that fellow Republicans will come to him as small government as they come on every issue other than national security. Cotton is a 1980s throwback, mentioning former President Ronald Reagan 10 times in a lengthy interview with Politico. Did it surprise you he would go for uh, go work for someone who supports not only mass incarceration, but an expansion of it? Yeah, Tom Cotton is truly one of the worst people in government, in my view, and uh, also actually worked at McKinsey uh, briefly early in his career. And... I was actually a bit surprised, even though this person I, I knew was politically on the right, just Cotton seemed like the worst. And and to some extent, actually a break from, yeah, the typical McKinsey person, actually to a large extent, I think, just in how severely right wing he is on uh, both economic policy, but also social policy. Uh, I, I think it was just another lesson in something that I, I write about, which is that interpersonal kindness is not the same as actual goodness, because this this person that we're talking about went on to do this job i thought was a very you know in the virtue ethics sense like admirable person um and was a, a good leader and had like you know fought in a war i didn't agree with but had like risked his life to, to be an infantry uh officer and yeah it's just i think something that some people like michelle obama 
still fail to to realize that like just because somebody is is decent in some interpersonal way doesn't mean that they actually are good for the world or doing good things. You're not referring to President George W. Bush, are you? Uh, I couldn't be. <laughs> so <laughs> legally. So you uh, also point out that in the final days of Barack Obama's administration, and ICE was not yet a household name. This is when you're moving on to be a consultant for ICE. Obama had done a good job of convincing young lefties like me, that yourself, that his administration was humane. In reality, Obama deported more people in his first three years than Trump did over the same period of his term. Even though Trump had put anti-immigrant politics at the heart of his campaign, the fact that I was about to work for his administration's immigration enforcement agency didn't really register. I didn't like what I had learned about ICE during the single weekend I was given to decide whether to join the project, but I figured it would be an opportunity to see how a federal agency operates. Did your experience at McKinsey change the way you thought of President Obama when Trump would embrace similar immigration policies to the Obama administration? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had a lot of changes in my views of Obama just over the intervening years and learning more about ICE and how it had been used under Obama was depressing and uh, disheartening and, and yeah, changed my my perspective of, of him. I mean, his policies, like Obama's policy of, yeah, focusing on people with relatively severe criminal records um, for deportation, you know, I, I felt like, oh, if you have to deport some people, which politically, you know, Obama felt like he had to do, it's better to focus on on people who have not been here very long or with criminal records. Um, but I actually think that like Obama was quite cowardly on immigration and did this thing where he tried to appease Republicans by being in some sense more conservative than they were on some policy issue, gets no credit for it, and then does a bunch of harm in the process. Um and yeah, I, I think it's also important to to say that like when you're given a new client product at, at McKinsey, you often have a day or two, uh, maybe a weekend at most to decide whether to accept it. And so if you don't already know a bunch about the client or the specific project, uh, there's just like a pretty strong pressure to just say yes to, to whatever it is you might be doing. Um, and yeah, I, I just was a little bit naive and, and went in being like, okay, I'm going to see how all this is working. But didn't have a strong view going in. We are speaking with journalist, podcast host, and publishing consultant Garrison Lovely, who posted the Nation Magazine article, Confessions of a McKinsey Whistleblower. Garrison is the host of the podcast, The Most Interesting People I Know, which you can find at mostinterestingpeople.podbean.com. Dot com. So you write that uh, then, you know, Trump decided to target nearly all undocumented immigrants when you started working at ICE for deportation and directed ICE to hire 10,000 additional deportation officers, which would have nearly tripled existing staffing level levels, though none of this was at odds with the remove people faster directive or arrest more people. Those are the two directives you were given. The intensity of the push unsettled us. Many of the team members had attended the Women's March, which I had found reassuring. The fact that people who had marched against Trump proceeded to embed themselves in the agency at the center of his agenda is, in a sense, all you need to know. To you, why is that all we need to know? What does that reveal to you about those who did both participate in the Women's, women's March, women's march, the first large protest during the Trump administration, and embedding themselves within the agency at the heart of his anti-immigrant agenda? What does that seeming contradiction tell you about either those people, McKinsey, or the state of the opposition to Trump? 
Yeah, I think when somebody goes to work for an organization, especially one that has a mission such as ISIS, you'd expect them to have some justification or some thought about why they're working there and maybe agree with that mission, at least broadly. But if you're working at McKinsey and you are consulting for that same organization um, or some other client, there's no expectation that you actually agree with what they're doing. There's just this moral abdication of responsibility that undergirds basically all of the work that McKinsey does, where you're just uh, a mercenary, you're there to help the client do whatever they do, and you do it for a few months, especially if you're a junior level, and then you move on. And so it, I didn't have to be like pro Rikers Island to be working for Rikers Island or pro ICE to be working for ICE. But then once ICE became even more extreme in, in its goals, and we were helping implement things that we thought would be bad by and large. Um, you know, tripling the number of deportation officers would require lowering the hiring bar and letting loose a bunch of people that wanted to be a deportation officer for ICE while Trump was president, which just sounded like uh, an atrocity waiting to happen. Once that happened, the people who had kind of naively taken the job, me, others on the team, we're kind of taken out of that stupor, stupor and and found ourselves like actually part of implementing Trump's agenda. And uh, it, it changed our perspective, I think. But you point out that, the uh, as you were saying, uh, the, well, as uh, McKinsey claims, the firm does execution, not policy. That was a common refrain at McKinsey. At Rikers, you write how you had asked my team about the possibility of eliminating, ca- or eliminating cash bail, which would have reduced the number of people passing through the jail at the time by roughly 45,000 or well over half, and was told that ideas like this were out of scope because the firm doesn't do policy. But that would lead to one of the two objectives that uh, the New York Department of Corrections had hired you or that ICE had hired you for. And that would lead, you know, more people faster being released. So how is that a policy out of the consultant's scope if it leads to the desired outcome that you were hired for? What's wrong with uh, eliminating cash bail? How is that policy and not just, as you were saying, a tweak, a simple reform? Yeah, I mean, where policy stops and execution begins is is not an obvious uh, thing. And I think it's just like generally a myth where somehow if you're participating in implementing some decision that's the result of a policy choice or the process of politics, that you're not participating in policy or politics. I think this is just a fiction. Um, I mean, McKinsey would say like, yeah, cash bail is is an actual policy choice, right? Um, in a way that like, how you classify and house people who are already incarcerated is not. Um, and I just remember, yeah, those words were said to me many times at, at McKinsey and, and most memorably by Richard Elder, who was a senior partner on the uh, ICE project. He managed the Department of Homeland Security relationship. And I pointed out in this conference call that we had with the ICE team, where a bunch of us were concerned about the ethical impact of the work we were doing, I asked him what would have stopped us from doing work procuring barbed wire for concentration camps for Nazi Germany based on this, we just do execution, we don't do policy uh, dichotomy. And he said something about McKinsey being a values-based organization, which is a non-answer. And if you actually looked at McKinsey's values, they just say nothing about doing work that's good for the world. And, and there was nothing he or anyone else could point to you at that time that would have said, no, McKinsey would not have worked with the Nazis. 
So you point out that you would spend often spend many nights uh, reading about the impacts of ice, like the story about a man who killed himself after being deported six times, or the one about a longtime resident torn from his community. I lay awake in a suite in the D.C. Park Hyatt that I could never afford on my own. My work no longer seemed innocuous. It felt instead like I was laying the groundwork for a humanitarian disaster. But... It was good money, a prestigious job that could have a huge impact on your future. With an internationally known firm, our McKinsey employees paid handsomely to, in this case, lay the groundwork for a humanitarian disaster. Is McKinsey incentivized and doesn't motivate its consultants to do harm? Yeah, I I guess it's like they pay well because they can attract better people that way. And and because the work of McKinsey is extremely lucrative. You know, I build something like four or $500 an hour when I was an analyst right out of school. And so, yeah, it just, it pulls in a lot of money being the most prestigious firm in a highly paid industry tends to do that. Um, and I, I think, I don't think that they're like, there's somebody at McKinsey being like, oh, we're going to pay them well. So they therefore do like harm in the world. It's more that, McKinsey has a lot of things to sweeten the pot to convince people to work there, to convince people to stay there. And then they also have an amoral approach to serving clients that has led them to do a bunch of harm. And when you're in that situation, all those things to sweeten the pot also help convince you to to stay there or at least not do what I've done, which is like come out publicly against them. Uh, because not only do they have some sway over you while you're working there, obviously, but after you leave, there's just alumni in, in various powerful positions. Um, and like the nonprofit that I ended up working at had a bunch of ex McKinsey people, one of the founders, uh, uh, many people on the board. And so it's sort of just like, do you want to piss off, you know, Goldman Sachs who has alumni and, and people everywhere? Do you want to piss off the federal government? Uh, all these ways kind of keep people's behavior in check. In addition to, you know, your own reputation being tied to McKinsey's now keeps you more or less doing something that keeps McKinsey's reputation uh, above board, at the very least not doing anything to exacerbate a uh, negative reputation that it might have. You've mentioned and you describe, and I think that uh, McKinsey would agree that they are amoral. They do not try to participate in anything when it comes to questions of right or wrong. How much do you think that leads to being immoral? Because there's a very thin line there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think McKinsey would contest that they're amoral. They, they've added some language to their code of conduct, which says that we want to do work that helps the world and we won't do work that is at odds with our values and, you know, have some kind of like fluffy language. And, and they have actually stopped working for certain clients. Um such as like tobacco companies, I believe, and, and others. So they're doing like some, there's been some reform in response to some of this, the news stories. Um, but if you're an amoral institution that is doing work for private sector clients or governments that often have immoral aims or immoral consequences, uh, then you're kind of just going to reflect the values of whoever can afford to hire you and who you're willing to work, work for. Um, and in many cases, these might be pretty banal or, or like slightly positive, slightly negative projects. Um, but in the most extreme cases, like like the ICE project or working for Saudi Arabia, uh, you just end up being a, a multiplier on 
whatever the ingoing mission of the organization is. Um, and, and that can just end up being really disastrous if, if that organization is having a bad impact on the world. You write how you remember uh, venting about the ice work to a partner who wasn't on the project. He encouraged me to sabotage things from within. At first, I thought he was joking, but he, an immigrant himself, seemed serious. Do you have any sense of how often sabotaging projects from within actually took place at McKinsey, especially during the Trump administration? From your experience, how possible would that even be? After all, wouldn't sabotage be discovered and the consultant would likely lose their job? Yeah, I, I don't know of any cases of that happening. Um, and there's just, you know, you can do your job more slowly. You can do bad work, but there's such a tight feedback loop where you're often checking in with your manager two or three times a day on work that you're doing. So pulling this off in any meaningful way would, would actually be quite difficult. Um, you know, I I accidentally moved some file like folder around that like, deleted a day of work for somebody at, at Rikers, which is a complete like rookie mistake. Um, but it did slow things down a bit. I, I think there's like versions of that where you could maybe, yeah, slow your work the way people sometimes do as a labor action. Um, but I would be surprised if there was any like outright cases of, of sabotage. You mentioned that in June 2019, I was arrested along with 35 others for blocking traffic outside an ICE detention facility in Elizabeth, New Jersey, an act of civil disobedience organized by the immigrant advocacy organization Never Again Action. These days, I regularly wear an Abolish ICE t-shirt and loudly speak out against the agency. My interest in the issue is genuine. I think ICE provides no social value and mostly serves to terrorize immigrants. But deep down, I think some part of it is also motivated by guilt. ICE is part of the post-9-11 Department of Homeland Security. It is part of the war on terror. We are told that the war on terror is over, yet this other thing, the forever war, lingers around the world and the institution's instructions that were created in response to 9-11, they all still linger 22 years later. Yesterday was 9-11. What do you think the likelihood is that the United States will ever and the war on terror domestically when it comes to DHS and ICE? Yeah, it's a big question. I, It's hard to imagine, just like the TSA, it's hard to imagine the TSA security process going away entirely now that it exists uh, because you could point to any kind of thing that happens down the line as like, oh, if only we had screen for water bottles or you know, had the x-ray machines or whatever, this thing wouldn't have happened. And then whoever ended the TSA would get blamed for it. And in the same way that ICE, yeah, didn't exist until I think 2003, it was reorganized in part of DHS's creation. Um, it's just super hard to imagine that these institutions go away once they're, they're created. Um, so I think in some form, domestic immigration enforcement of the kind that ICE does will persist indefinitely um, because, you know, if you call for abolishing it, people will say, oh, so you think that immigration law shouldn't be enforced at all, which is not the same thing, right? This is talking about an agency whose only job is to do domestic immigration enforcement. Uh, so people who are already here in the vast majority of cases living peacefully, um, just being taken from their workplaces and homes and, and deported to countries that they might not even know. Um, this is just serving no actual value. Um, and yet, because it's politically coded as like 
being tough on immigration or at least rule of law uh, enforcing or whatever, some positive thing to a politician. I just can't imagine it changing in terms of the broader domestic uh, war on terror or forever wars. Like I don't have a particularly informed view except that, yeah, it's hard to imagine any of these things going away because of the political incentives involved, because it's very easy to point to uh, the removal of some agency or some program as the reason some disaster happens down the line. And so every politician is more or less terrified of, of facing that kind of blowback, even if it's the right political choice or policy choice. So after you left McKinsey, you write how in December 2018, I met some of my former colleagues for dinner in New York. One of them had landed his dream job and signed a lease for a ridiculously expensive apartment. When the talk turned to politics, I remember him drunkenly proclaiming, all I know is my life is amazing and I want nothing to change. People chastised him, but I appreciated the honesty. I couldn't help but notice that everyone else at the table who postured as a progressive, had gone on to work at a private equity firm or a hedge fund. In your opinion, is working for a private equity firm or hedge fund any better than working for a consultancy like McKinsey? And did any of them explain how it was better than working at McKinsey? I don't think anybody said anything about it being like morally superior. I, I don't think many, many of these people were, were working at McKinsey to, to do good in the world. I think like most people go there because it's a prestigious job that pays well, gives you good exit opportunities, works with smart people, et cetera. Um, I, I also, yeah, I don't think there's like a huge difference between McKinsey and a hedge fund or private equity firm. Private equity is in some ways just more damaging as like intrinsic to the model. Um, you know, there's just... But at the same time, there's more accountability because the the firm actually has skin in the game. They they own the company that they're working uh, on reforming or turning around or making more profitable. Um, but it often is focused on like a five-year profitability horizon and not some kind of like long-term sustainability. And there are just tons of examples of private equity firms buying beloved companies and, and then kind of gutting them and uh, making it off with lots of money without providing much value. Hedge funds, I mean, this gets into like how you feel about markets and whether you think it's valuable to like make them more like quote unquote efficient um, or to like make markets in, in the first place. Um, and so I think of these as kind of like accelerators of capitalism. It, it kind of depends on, on what they're doing. Things like high frequency trading, I think might just be bad and, and providing basically no value um, for other hedge funds like if you have a capital allocation happening in, in in a market-based system then like they are just kind of necessary parts of of that system um whereas like mckinsey it, it is different in that you work for all these different clients you work for government clients and that won't be the case in hedge funds and private equity firms and so some projects at mckinsey i think just end up having a lot more harm than like the typical work at a hedge fund or, or private equity firm but on average i, I think it's it's hard to say it's it's at the very least like talented people who could be working to improve the world who are not doing that. And I think that's where most of the cost comes from. And it's not to say that like if McKinsey didn't exist, all these people would be like doing pro-social work and, and being like organizers, activists, whatever. But I, I do think McKinsey is part of the reason why so many young, talented people don't go and work for government or working broadly to make the world a better place because they've bought to some extent, this idea that you can have it all and do well by doing good. 
and uh, I think this is just a myth, and you just have to pick. And uh, it's just not the incentives are not aligned for people to be doing work that actually improves the world, which is unfortunate. You write the McKinsey won't truly reform itself because it neither needs to nor wants to. As the world's largest private partnership, it can't be taken over by shareholder activists. All it needs to sustain itself is its client base and its recruiting pipeline from elite universities. The past few years of critical attention have done little to affect either. In 2021, then-managing partner Kevin Sneeder told the Financial Times that the firm had lost very, very, very few clients and just had its best recruiting year ever, as you mentioned earlier. What does it reveal to you about the trajectory of our society when a firm that does nothing but help power and money, as you argue, gets more power and money and is still actually growing? It's not good. Uh, I, I think, yeah, it, it is just, I mentioned this earlier in the interview, but it's it's just depressing um, that you can have all of this negative, true information revealed about McKinsey. And because it is just so unaccountable, there's no real regulation of management consulting as an industry. Um, you just need the clients to keep wanting to hire them and the smart young people keep wanting to work for them. And if those two things don't change, then I don't really see McKinsey changing in any fundamental way. Um, and so I think that like I, I'd call for pretty narrow things in, in the article uh, in terms of like government regulation of the industry, forcing them to disclose conflicts of interest and having much more scrutiny about, you know, projects where McKinsey is working for the FDA and then also the pharmaceutical companies that the FDA is regulating um, and then college campuses that could like not allow McKinsey to recruit on campus that could provide counterbalancing uh, negative, accurate information about McKinsey and other consulting firms to prospective student uh, students that might want to work there. But uh, broadly, I think like, yeah, if we work towards a, a world where McKinsey is not benefiting from uh, the the bad things that it's doing, it, it's at least being held more accountable to that. That's like a much, much broader project and uh, the one of the the political left, I think, more broadly. Just one more question for you, Garrison. One of the sure. things that I just wanted to mention real quick before I ask it is that you write how we will know things have improved only when the name McKinsey on a resume becomes what I learned it should be, a source of shame. And I just want people to remember that, that Garrison believes this is a source of shame, but that's not a shame that's shared with Pete Buttigieg or the Biden administration or the Democratic Party. And uh, that's something that we should always keep in mind. We have been speaking with We've had returning to the show, journalist, podcast host, publish, publishing consultant Garrison Lovely, post of the Nation Magazine article, Confessions of a McKinsey Whistleblower, and go read the entire article. Again, I know that we've just done a very uh, long-form, in-depth uh, conversation with uh, Garrison, but we've only skimmed the surface of what he reveals in his writing, so make sure you check that out. One last question for you, Garrison, and as always with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So, Garrison, in your opinion, would McKinsey assist in the execution of policies if the United States does become wholeheartedly fascist? Would McKinsey make a fortune by ushering in some kind of neo-Nazi government? Yeah, wow. Um, I mean, I think that the expansion of ICE and the 
changing of the remit of the who could be deported by ICE was a significant step towards uh, fascism in the United States. You know, ICE, I, I see it as similar to a Gestapo, um, and McKinsey was willing to do that work. I think that there's some, there's have been some reforms, um, and they've stopped working with ICE since then, but I, I don't know if that was because of a change of heart or because they didn't want the blowback for it. Um, and uh, Ian McDougall's writing on, on ICE and McKinsey in the New York Times and ProPublica uh, talks about their efforts to work with Customs and uh, Border uh, Protection, which is a sister organization to ICE. And so I would not be surprised, and I think it's hard to point to within their, their policies now, uh, them not working with American agencies, even if they start goose uh goose stepping even further garrison really a pleasure having you back on this show make sure you check out garrison's podcast the most interesting people i know which you can find at mostinterestingpeople.podbean.com and uh as uh, garrison was on the show back on 4 20 2019 when we talked with him about his writing at current affairs make america trip again you can find that interview with Garrison at our site. This is hell.com when searching on his name. And as always, that interview is free. Thank you so much for being back on the show, Garrison. Really appreciate it. Fantastic writing. Oh, thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. And that statement, that tagline, perfectly describes McKinsey, which lacks any values other than raking in profits without any concerns for the costs to the rest of society. And the world, you know, collateral damage, externalities, that kind of stuff. If you learned something about McKinsey from our conversation with Garrison and realize yet again, yes, this is hell, show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support by becoming a patreon member not only do you get the bonus weekly patreon podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online you also get a secret code word that gives you a discount on all this is hell merchandise you now also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on patreon and our newest feature every week whoever is producing chooses a question from hell for me submitted by our patreon subscribers a question that i've not seen or heard until our producer asks it on the patreon podcast that's all on this is hell on patreon and only at patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far this week's question from hell is what does this is hell have to do to attract more racist white supremacist misogynist far-right trolls so we can make fun of them it's a very good question uh let's see over on do you want me to read the hellhole stuff I see that on yeah let's start with that all right this is from our private listeners group on Facebook. Yeah, you can get it. All you have to do is just uh, send me a message via Facebook or send one to Will and uh, we'll put you in the group. Yeah, join the club where we speak a little bit more freely, I guess. A little uh, bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Starting out with our very own Jeff Dorchin. Uh, 
actually. Yeah, demand every other minute that Biden step down so Hillary can run again. <laughs> That's pretty good, Jeff. That's a good one. That's really good. Yeah, yeah impeach Biden. That's right. Impeach we want Biden. Hillary. That's right. You heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> By the way, we don't Hillary. want Hillary. <laughs> nope. Oh, maybe she can build a submarine with the uh, C-suite of uh, McKinsey. That will solve some of our problems. Uh, Clint B., replies become a radical extremist angry conservative raver i think you could probably fake that pretty well chuck very might, well might need more stimulants yeah um, jason J interview joe rogan and sell dick pills <laughs> <laughs> that's nice uh, i went to school with a guy named dick pills dick pills <laughs> yeah Insisted to go by Richie. My dad did work with a man named Richard Head for a while. Oh, really? Yeah. My uh, typing teacher in high school was Vernon Glasscock. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it radio friendly since 1996. Uh, Martin S. replies, Dukes of Hazard, Daisy Mateys for all. <laughs> cool. Bra- Braden S., George Soros sponsorship deal. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. Might make some of that McKinsey money on the show. Uh, Matt B., uh, Colin, Colin portion of the show. <laughs> oh, <man>. Ouch. <laughs> I've been, always been thinking about doing that for Patreon, uh-huh. have it just all be Colin, oh, but man. then I thought that would be miserable. Yeah, for all involved, exactly. probably. Didn't exactly. you guys used to do that on the... Way back when? No, we uh, had correspondence. We had correspondence, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, Laddie S. Offer them bottomless Doritos and Little Debbies. Yeah, gross. Uh, Wocek R. Start hawking phony boner pills. <laughs> wow. There's already a theme for me. Wow. I'll have to edit that for the radio, wow. I think. I don't um, think so. Okay. Oh, yeah, because being a boner can just be yeah. being a moron. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, Martin F. Provide them with free copies of the Turner Diaries and then tell them that Hitler's grandmother's last name was Schickelgruber. <laughs> Watch them recoil in disgust at such a lame surname. <laughs> <laughs> Julie M. Casually assert unmarried childless, wo- childless women are the happiest Americans. <laughs> very uh, timely. Yeah, very, very timely. timely. Aaron D. Tell them that your email is my pillow customer support. Krimsky <laughs> uh, Crackers replies, post in support of the Disney woke communist fluoride vax Little Mermaid Alliance. If you post it, they will come. It's sweet. Misha D. replies, make video of their moms drinking Bud Light. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> Better your mom than mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Glad my mom doesn't drink. Uh, do you want the n- normal Facebook page? Sure. All right, let's do that. Um, Warren L. replies to the question, what does This Is Hell need to do to attract more racist, white supremacist, misogynist, far-right trolls so we can make fun of them? Warren L. replies, you need an Ivy League demagogue with stolen valor. 
I hear DeSantis is looking for a gig. <laughs> uh, Pete Valvanis advertise in the Epoch Times. <laughs> That's a great idea. Actually. It's free. It's free. <laughs> uh, Joanne C. set up shop in Kankakee. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. It's a strange land. Uh, David B. They seem to like hanging out in front of Disney World. Maybe make them some Mickey Mouse hats with swastikas over the ears. Wow. Whoa. That'd be a dark sight. <laughs> Kenneth G. Simple. Post the podcast to Truth Social. Another great idea. Actually. I don't know if that's going to be around much longer, though. Yeah, we'll have to see. Might have to rush into that. There's always par- parlor or whatever. Exactly. Um, Charles K. Advertise rooms at Trump Tower in Russian. <laughs> Fabio L. Quote, retweet right-wingers with spicy memes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Anthony C. Replace Chuck with Jody Whitaker. I don't know who Jody Whitaker is. <laughs> Neither right, okay. either. We'll have to find that Further out. Further research needed. <laughs> Thanks for the... Uh, the tip. The tip, Anthony. And last but not least, Carol G., Offer a free one-month membership to a homoerotic marine-style training camp. The first 100 new sign-ups get a $100 gift card to Bass Pro Shops and a chance to win a lifetime membership to Hustlers University. (laughs) Wow. Carol G. Coming out strong. (laughs) Yeah, way to finish up for the day. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, they win your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, and you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell. As always, on our Facebook page, you can tweet it at us, you can email it to us, you can put it on our Patreon, you can put put it on Discord. Uh, but we will be announcing this week's question, or yeah, the winner for this week's question from hell, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's moment of truth? Jeff travels back 39 years to revisit his, or to revisit his visit to Morocco. And we will have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On September 13th, 1899, 124 years ago this week in New York City, Dr. David Edson, son of former New York Mayor Franklin Edson, was on his way home from making a house call. So apparently there was a time when instead of you actually going to the doctor's office, the doctor would come to you, which is weird because we were always told how back in the day things were so much worse. Now we got to drag our lame asses to some sterile office, often in a hospital or a professional building attached to a hospital, sit in a waiting room with a whole bunch of other sick people transmitting diseases to each other in a place where only the most virulent of viruses can actually thrive. Anywho, back to Dr. Edison. Back in 1899, Dr. Edison was on his way home from one of those mythical house calls, riding in an electric-powered taxi cab driven by a cab driver named Arthur Smith. That's right, an electric-powered taxi cab on the way home from a doctor's house call in 1899 is starting to sound almost futuristic. Just as the cab arrived at the corner of 74th and Central Park West, a truck moved into the right-hand lane. Smith found his cab wedged between the truck and a streetcar that was coming to a stop in the center lane of the street, which is a bad place for a streetcar to stop. The door of the streetcar opened and outstepped a 68-year-old real estate broker named Henry Bliss, 
who then turned around to help a woman step down from the streetcar. Very kind of him. Smith, the cab driver, rewarded that kindness by slamming on his brakes but could not stop the cab in time. Cab hit Mr. Bliss, ran over him, crushing his chest and skull. Dr. Edson jumped from the cab's back seat and immediately tried to help Mr. Bliss, who was rushed to a nearby hospital when he died the next day. Smith, or where he died the next day, Smith, the cab driver, was arrested and charged with manslaughter. But the charge was later dropped after the judge ruled that his actions were neither malicious nor negligent. In this way, Henry Bliss became the per first person in the United States to be killed in an automobile accident. Keep in mind that was an electric automobile. And that explains why doctors no longer make house calls, calls and there are no electric taxi cabs. Or not, mostly not. Also in Rotten History, on September 13, 1923, 100 years ago this week, Spain found itself in a period of great domestic turmoil, brought on in part by resentment among military leaders against the Spanish monarchy, which they held responsible for what they saw as a series of national humiliations. These humiliations included the still recent loss of colonial possessions to the United States in the Spanish-American War, and an even more recent series of military defeats in Morocco. While military leaders were held responsible for the debacle, the generals in turn blamed it on government incompetence and insufficient arms and supplies. Meanwhile, economic collapse and rising unemployment had provoked a social revolt, a revolt among the very working classes from whom soldiers had been conscripted. Fearing a possible revolution led by communists and anarchists, General Miguel Primo de Rivera seized the moment to lead a coup d'etat. General Rivera and his men overthrew the incumbent Spanish government and persuaded Spain's King Alfonso XIII to make Primo de Rivera the new prime minister. With support from the business community and the Catholic Church, naturally, because business and the Catholic Church love military coup d'etats, Primo de Rivera promised he would hold power for only three months in what he called, quote, a brief parenthesis in the constitutional life of Spain. He then dissolved parliament, suspended the constitution, censored the press, and established a dictatorship that would last until 1930. That's a seven-year brief parenthesis. But in 1930, further economic collapse would force Rivera to resign as heightened tensions between Republicans and fascists in Spain continued to push the country towards civil war. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell Will, who's coming up as our next and final guest for the week here on This Is Hell. Tomorrow's guest is organizer and writer Kelly Hayes, who will talk about the recent Boston Review article she co-authored with uh, Miriam Kaba. How much discomfort is the whole world worth? Movement building requires a culture of listening, not the mastery of the right language. And if you listened to our conversation yesterday with Cherise Morris, that's how uh, we started. We actually ended that conversation with a discussion of exactly what we'll be discussing on Wednesday. It came up in the question from hell. So definitely tune in for that if you heard Sharice on Monday. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>